we are going to unite and level up. I will lead this great party into a new era. You are fake news. Hi guys and welcome to Politics Mad, the podcast where we talk about all the UK and international politics except about coronavirus. I'm Ollie. And I'm Rob. This week in the domestic section, we'll be taking a look at how resilient the UK economy is after a week of heavy job cuts. We'll also be taking a look at the negotiations over Brexit and how those are proceeding for the UK. And on the international front, we'll be taking a look at the New York laws China has placed on Hong Kong, and we'll be looking at the situation in Ethiopia right now. So let's kick off with the domestic side. The UK economy has been clobbered this week. Ollie, tell us them in details. Yeah, so essentially it's been a week of job cuts, uh, both predicted for the future and straight away. Just to give you some examples, the firm Upper Crust, which make baguettes and sandwiches, see them lots of train stations, they're cutting 5,000 jobs after their global sales fell by 95% in the past two months compared to last year, which is huge. Um, EasyJet cutting 2,000 jobs, the Royal Mail another 2,000, Airbus 1,700, uh, Accenture 900, TM Lewin, the shirt makers 600, and various other high street firms, theatres. It's been all over the news. It's been a huge week of job cuts. It has, isn't it? And th- this is the interesting thing in that I think most people were expecting job cuts, but because of the furlough system, um, most of those job cuts were delayed and we were kind of left sat waiting asking when are these going to come and i think this week is is definitely a break from what we've seen so far because of these large scale job um cuts being officially announced yeah and if you look at the the firms that so far have been cutting it's hospitality industry travel industry that probably the two industries that have been hit hardest by this coronavirus and needed the furlough scheme the most it it has hasn't it and obviously this is going to ramp up in the next few months, both in the UK and worldwide. What has the opposition's response been to this so far? Yeah, so Annalisa Dodds, the still new shadow chancellor, she's been in a job for a couple of months now, but obviously it's uh, still gone gone under the radar a little bit, uh, gave her what was billed as her first major speech this week as shadow chancellor. And she basically advocated for not an extension of the furlough scheme, which Labour are against, but for it to be used to target specific industries and areas that are suffering the most. She was also quizzed afterwards and she actually called for a wealth tax. She said that Labour doesn't believe in general tax rises across the country, but she thought that something like a wealth tax would be quite beneficial. Um, I've got a clip from her speech with her talking about it just here. Instead of the limited summer economic update promised next week, We need a real back-to-work budget. It must focus on preventing unemployment, supporting the unemployed back into work, and creating the jobs of the future, so that when we emerge from this crisis, Britain is ready to come back even better than before. So does it look likely that the government will cave? Because we've seen seen quite a few U-turns in the last month or two from the government, way, way more than usual. And there again, the gov- uh, the opposition are pushing the government on the specific point of um, kind of tapering the furlough scheme slower in certain industries, such as the ones you mentioned. But it hasn't really made the headlines that much this week. I get a sense that there's not too much pressure on the government on this issue because it's not an apparent problem 
right now. It might be a problem in August and September, but not really right now. What What's your reading of the situation? Yeah, I think in some ways they're going to be waiting for the announcement next week when the chance of Rishi Sunak is going to give, some have called it a mini budget, that the Conservatives aren't saying that, they're going to say it's sort of, they're going to have, say what the next step is going to be and how they manage the economy and how they manage coming out of the furlough scheme because we already know that from the 1st of August employers will have to start playing national insurance and pension contributions and then come September they'll have to start paying 10% of furloughed employees salaries and that rises to 20% in October so while a lot of firms will be coming out of the furlough scheme anyway because of the easing of lockdown restrictions there's still going to be an easing of the furlough payments themselves so from that perspective, Rishi Sunak may decide to change that. He may decide he wants uh, to bring in some tax cuts. He may, like VAT, for example, we don't know. He may put more economic stimulus into the economy. We, we don't know yet. So I think Labour are just trying to preempt that a little bit. And I'm sure they'll probably give more of a detailed response after next week. Right. And moving now on to Brexit, um, we've seen the breaks, the talks largely break down, haven't we, early in, in the start of the week? What's the situation as it stands right now? Well, yeah, so this week was quite interesting because it's been the first face-to-face talks we've had on Brexit for months now. They've been going on over Zoom calls for the past uh, few months with Michelle Barnier and David Frost and Michael Gove. So that's progressed a little bit, but talks this week were said to end quite quickly over various disagreements. Uh, Michelle Barnier said there wasn't enough understanding and respect from Britain for the EU's point of view. Um, Boris Johnson's been reiterating that he didn't want EU courts or EU laws to affect Britain. So at the moment, there seems to be serious divergences. But again, it's still early days. Um, There's obviously going to be differences like on fishing policy and various international laws and policies and whatnot. So um, and we've reached quite an important milestone, I thought, this week, because correct me if I'm wrong, but we passed the point at which we can't extend essentially now. Um, I saw a few tweets from um, political right-wingers in the UK, and they're getting quite happy now because we're past the crucial time, or we're getting past the crucial time in July, whereby we kind of need to know what's going to happen in the next few months. Yeah, so basically to have extended the current EU talks, there would it would have been needed to, there would have been a new treaty needed which would have had to have been ratified by all the eu countries which obviously would have been quite unlikely given the current circumstances and the speed at which these things can happen so the fact we passed the deadline made some believe the outcome of no deal in the talks was more likely obviously that's only if the talks fail but currently we haven't got enough indication to know that's going to happen because they don't talk a lot about these things. They just sort of say, oh, we've made a little bit of progress today or we've made significant progress without actually saying what the progress is. You mentioned David Frost, our negotiator in Europe. He's been in the news a fair bit this week, hasn't he? Because of his appointment as the new national security advisor. On the face of it, that doesn't sound too controversial, but what's the key issue here? Yeah, so essentially, the cabinet secretary, who is a civil servant and essentially runs the civil service, the highest ranking civil servant, works very closely with the prime minister. The role has existed for the past hundred years. It's very, very important. And before, the role of the cabinet secretary also 
was the role of the National Security Advisor. They were the same. But the current Cabinet Secretary, Sir Mark Sedwill, is stepping down from the role. And thus the government have announced they are splitting the role into Cabinet Secretary and National Security Advisor. And our chief negotiator, David Frost, will be assuming that role. Now, the reason this has been slightly controversial is because it's seen as a political appointment rather than in the past, civil servants are impartial. So many politicians have come out and said they believe this is a bad thing. Interestingly, that includes former Prime Minister and former Home Secretary Theresa May. And this is a clip of her in the Commons questioning Michael Gove on this. I served on the National Security Council for nine years six years as Home Secretary and three as Prime Minister. During that time, I listened to the expert, independent advice from National Security Advisers. On Saturday, my Right Honourable Friend said, we must be able to promote those with proven expertise. Why then is the new National Security Advisor a political appointee with no proven expertise in national security. So that kind of goes to the heart of the wider Johnson administration's um, drive to radically change the civil service. We know, we've known for some time that Dominic Cummings, um, Boris Johnson's advisor, has a lot of gripes with how the civil service runs as it is now. Is this the first step in the path of really radically remaking the civil service in his eyes then? Well, yeah, yeah, Dominic Cummings has never made it a secret how much he thinks the civil service um, is wasted in many aspects and how he thinks it can be better centralised and better run. And I think, as with all past governments, there's always uh, a desire to have more control over the government and, you know, give the civil service less. Because for some, the civil service is seen as the sort of organisation which knows how to keep everything going and steady, is seen as um, small-c conservative by some... Um, so previous governments, whether conservative or Labour, they've always looked to try and uh, lessen the power of the civil service and uh, get more for themselves in some way. Yeah, but moving on now, we'll, we'll move into Hong Kong, because that's been both significant domestically and internationally this week. And that started with Boris Johnson's announcement this week. So, Ra, what's significant about that from a domestic perspective? I mean, it, it is really quite radical what he's what he's done, although we had had the inkling that this was going to happen previously. Boris Johnson has essentially said that all people are eligible for British national overseas status. That's those people who are born in Hong Kong before the handover to China, so before 1997, can now come to live and work in the UK for up to five years. No questions asked, after which they can apply for citizenship and stay here permanently. I mean, this is the most radical change in our immigration law um, or immigration circumstances since 2004 and since those 10 mainly Eastern European EU countries were admitted to the EU and Britain said there would be no transitional controls. Um, this potentially opens, well, doesn't potentially, this opens the door up to about 3.3 million eligible Hong Kongers and their dependents. So if you're a 35-year-old Hong Konger, you would have been born previous to the handover, so you would be able to come to Britain. Your son, say, who is about five years old, would be your dependent, and so would he, even though he individually isn't allowed. So it's a massive opening of the immigration uh, door to Hong Kong. Absolutely massive. Yeah, and given that this is a government which prides itself on you know, getting Brexit done and bringing in tighter immigration reforms, you know, their the new points-based system, 
which is going to restrict it further. Why are they then bringing in easier immigration laws? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, there has never been a single event like this, which has been conservative led, that's just opened the door to literally millions of people. I mean, I can't think of the last time a conservative government did something like this. I mean, you would have to I don't think there's a, a time in post-war history that's actually ever come to this sort of scale. Um, it's an interesting one. I think it's a combination of factors why the Conservatives have suggested it. Um, first and foremost, I think it's seen not as an immigration issue, but more of a responsibility to Hong Kongers issue, which is very strong within the Conservative Party. I think they take their a tougher line on China and a much more stricter interpretation of the uh, responsibilities that we hold to Hong Kong residents. The second issue is I think that the type of immigration, if there was to be a massive wave of immigration coming from Hong Kong in the aftermath of this announcement, it's the type of immigration that I think the Conservatives know wouldn't produce much opposition domestically. I think The Economist put it really well this week when they said um, Hong Kong immigrants wouldn't exactly be um, lobby or uh, vying for fish packing jobs in Grimsby, which is was very apt, I thought, because it's not like the waves of Eastern European uh, migration we saw in the noughties. These people are tend, would tend to be richer, uh, more educated and kind of working in higher income industries. Yeah, and that's probably a good spot to move on into why this has actually been brought into force. And that brings us to the international Chinese aspect. So China and Hong Kong, how has the temperature been lifted by the announcements of the new laws? The new law, as we've spoken about previous in previous weeks, relates to crimes involving succession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with a foreign force. All have been quite vaguely defined. And the key issue this week was that the law actually came into force. Um, we saw some protests over this, very, very small scale back protests, it must be said. And more ominously, we saw the first use of the new security bill. At least 10 people were accused of violating it, including a man caught kind of riding a motorcycle with a pro-independence flag. This is quite significant now because this law really opens up Chinese mainland security apparatus to go and operate in Hong Kong. Yeah, and China's also set up a new security agency in Hong Kong, right? They have. It's called the Office for Safeguarding National Security. It's essentially a quasi-off-branch um, of the Chinese mainland security forces. And appointed to its head is a man called Zhen Zhangzhong, uh, who is quite a di divisive figure. He's definitely a hardliner in terms of Chinese uh, internal security on the mainland, which was seen by many activists in the uh, democracy scene in Hong Kong as a death sentence for their movement. I mean, we've seen Joshua Wong, the, the student leader of democracy protests in Hong Kong, um, disbanding his movement Democito. Um, Nathan Law, who's another student activist who was actually a legislator in Hong Kong for a little bit. Implementation of national security law basically um, infringe uh, every rights that we could possibly have. And everyone who uh, merely take an interview talking about US-China relationship or even sanctioning would be seen as a violation of the national security law. So I think for now, we need a public figure that would go to the international stage to spread a Hong Kong story and their demands uh, with an international advocacy campaign. And I think that is exactly the impetus that 
uh, for my move. Yeah, and this is all quite interesting because it seems that China is acting at a time where the West is quite distracted by the coronavirus. Some countries are looking inwards on themselves, and it almost seems like the world's the world stage has turned a bit with China trying to assert itself as a new superpower in this new world order. It is, yeah. I mean, one gets the sense that just about ten years ago, China wouldn't have been able to pull this off, and that's because they couldn't. I mean, this was tried in two thousand and three. Um, in 2014, there were large-scale protests over Chinese mainland political action. Just last year, uh, when all of this kicked off, we saw tremendously large protests, which actually successfully um, achieved shelving the security law back then. China has done something it's never done previously. It's now imposing, without the consent of Hong Kong's legislative means, a new security law on Hong Kong. And they're doing that because they know they can. They're much more powerful now than Hong Kong. They are the world's second and, by some measures, first biggest economy in the world. The world is distracted. And even if it wasn't distracted, I mean, it doesn't really care as much, I think. One gets the sense that the West are fragmented on various pol foreign policy issues and norms that were sacrosanct just um, 10 years ago. I mean, it's, it's quite a dire image for Hong Kong people who believe in democracy. And do you think... Part of that is sort of testament to the, not testament perhaps, but exemplified by the fact that China has brought in this law, which actually doesn't just affect Hong Kong, it affects any Hong Kong nationals living abroad, I believe. It does. It does. And I mean, this is very problematic for people who are just transiting through Hong Kong, or as you say, Hong Kong nationals who are abroad and come back to Hong Kong. This is essentially making Hong Kong security law much, much more similar to the authoritarian state law of China. And it's part of this wider sense of movement that Hong Kong will be less of a dynamic East meets West area, less of a kind of almost German free trading Lubeckian city from the Middle Ages, and more just a standard city for China, albeit quite a wealthy one. This is definitely a shifting of, of the balance of power in the world. One, you really get the sense of that. Okay, and moving on now to the continent of Africa and the country of Ethiopia. Now, what's been happening with one of the ethnic groups in Ethiopia? This week, a singer called Hakalu Hundessa, who's uh, part of the Oromo uh, ethnic group in Ethiopia, the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia, making about 35% of the total population, was killed. Um, and it's quite significant killing because he was a very, very popular singer in the country, an extremely important figure with the Oromo community. And he often spoke about the injustices that Oromo people face in Ethiopia. And it was seen to really symbolize their struggle and their problems. Um, his killing has sparked widespread protests across the country and across um, the, the land that Oromos inhabit, Oromia. Um, on Friday, many businesses and government offices reopened in Addis Ababa after being closed for several days due to the violence. But the internet, as of yet, we can see, has is, is remained shut for the, throughout the country. Thursday, officials announced that 97 people had been killed by, either by the security forces or in inter-ethnic clashes. So this is a really... This is, this is a really big flare-up of violence in the country. Do you think the fact that the internet's been shut down for so many is one of the reasons we haven't necessarily heard about this? Or is it just a case of we don't hear about that much news coming from that part of the world anyway? It's a bit of both, really. I mean, obviously, if this happened in Europe, this would be front headline news, but it's, it's sub-Saharan Africa. I think also, yeah, that it has placed a blanket on um, information getting out. I mean, yesterday I was covering the story for the BBC World Service as part of BBC OS, and... 
I couldn't find anyone there on Twitter or anything like that who was speaking about it. Um, however, I did manage to find a person from America who is of Oromo heritage, and she was telling me what she's been hearing in the past week or so. My name is Maratu Katila, and I'm an Oromo American. Hachalu Hundesa was an icon of Oromuma, and this is extremely important to the Oromo people because as Oromos, we have been marginalized within Ethiopia for over a century. This was an assassination of a national hero, and the way that things have been handled and the fallout afterwards has been beyond disappointing and concerning and um, really deserves a lot of attention. It's, you know, extremely challenging to get in touch with people because because of the internet shutdown. Close friends have family members that have been arbitrarily arrested. And this is a pattern across different areas within Oromia for potentially having posted something that was somewhat critical of the government. The Oromo people need to be able to have the right to self-determination, which is clearly and unequivocally their right as per the Ethiopian constitution. Yeah, and this is quite interesting with Ethiopia because, as I understand it, it's quite a heterogeneous nation with over 80 ethnic groups. So from that perspective, do you think that's going to affect the stability of the country in any way? It, I, I can't help but thinking yes. I mean, it's quite an unusual case of ethnic violence because it's the, it's the largest ethnic group, the Oromos, who are crying foul here and saying over decades they've been repressed politically um, and that up until very recently, they haven't had much political power. Actually, the current pres, uh, pr Prime Minister, um, Abiy Ahmed, um, was brought to power largely because of their concerns, and he is an ethnic Oromo. It's a, it's a mega diverse country in terms of human ethnicities. It's kind of like a, a Democratic Republic of Congo or Nigeria in that regard. And it's very unstable. It's much more unstable than the other two nations uh, I mentioned um, because of its history of inter-ethnic violence and repression and things like that. Yeah, and I guess this is quite important in economic terms as well, because Ethiopia is growing as an African power. I mean, as you mentioned, there's over 100 million people living there now. It's going to be growing in importance in the next few years. Do you think we're going to see a sort of growing importance for Ethiopia then? Because obviously it's this African giant with over 100 million people now. It's growing. It's increasingly important in economic terms. But do you think with this violence, it will have some kind of effect in the nation's influence going forward. Yeah, it is It is very important to underline how important the country it is. Kind of like Nigeria 20 years ago. I mean, 20 years ago, the main, the most powerful country in sub-Saharan Africa was South Africa. Um, now it's arguably Nigeria, and it's just shot up in the last 20 years. Ethiopia is kind of along the same path, if, if with a bit of a time lag. Uh, it's a massive country, over 100 million people, as you said. Um, it's been having just ex extraordinarily high economic growth up until now recently. Um, and that's, I don't think that's going to stop it. There's a lot of Western interest in it, a lot of interesting the Chinese interest in it increasingly, as, as in other parts of the Horn of Africa and East Africa as well. Um, Ethiopia is in a very dangerous political situation right now. It has been for the last decade or so. I really hope the violence doesn't continue. But when I was doing my research yesterday about the Oromo community, you kind of get the sense that they are very, they more identified with being Oromo rather than Ethiopian. I mean, all of the Twitter accounts I saw were free Oromia or I'm in a, I'm proud Oromo, not Ethiopian. Um, and I hadn't really seen something like that previously. So I am slightly worried that this violence that we've seen last week may continue and it might not calm down. And the, pre the prime minister spoke about this a few days ago and he said, look, there's subversive elements in the country are trying to spark another civil war. 
I think there's a lot of genuine anger here. And if this starts boiling over, Ethiopia is the perfect country for this sort of inter-ethnic violence to take hold of just because of the sort of country it is. Very interesting. And I hope the situation there is able to... No, shit. Okay, that's the end of the show, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Just remember, we are on Facebook and Twitter, so you could, if you could give us a like, a follow, retweet us, listen to some more of our other shows in the past few weeks, we'd be really grateful. And uh, thank you so much, and we'll see you next week.